Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Crime Story Podcast with Carrie Antholis, where stories of crime and justice are told. On today's podcast, Crime Story reporters read their contributions to the prosecutor's cinematic opening in The People vs. Robert Durst, which you can find in written form at crimestory.com. John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in the trial of Robert Durst, appears to be on a mission that goes beyond convicting Durst for the murder of Durst's longtime friend, Susan Berman. With his opening statement in the trial, Lewin seems to be laying the groundwork for a story that he hopes will be so compelling, with a presentation of evidence so persuasive, that he will convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Robert Durst murdered three people, Berman, Durst's wife Kathy, and his Texas neighbor, Morris Black. In so doing, Lewin also appears to aspire to single-handedly rehabilitate the tattered national image of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. From the acquittal of O.J. Simpson to the mistrials of the Menendez brothers and Phil Spector, the LADA's office has developed a reputation for tone-deaf storytelling. Lewin has chosen to begin this long trial with an opening statement that is going into its third day. By contrast, the defense expects that their opening statement will take substantially less than a day. What follows is a blog discussion between members of the Crime Story team where we assess the effectiveness of Lewin's opening statement. The participants are Sean Smith, Carrie Antholis, Chris Taracone, Karen Ann Coburn, and Molly Miller. We begin with Sean Smith. In Department 91, a dark courtroom in the airport courthouse set aside to accommodate overflow spectators and media from the Durst trial, the wall-mounted video monitor is trained on yet another video monitor, this one positioned behind Deputy DA John Lewin one flight down as he delivers the people's opening statements. The meta-implications of this incestuous media loop are well worth unpacking because of how they coincide with Lewin's case and the fundamental mechanics of a celebrity murder trial circa 2020. Chris Terracone. Crime Story has been allocated one seat in the courtroom for the Durst trial, and for the opening statements, I am assigned to fill it. Upon reaching the airport courthouse last Wednesday, I was greeted by all the trappings of the next great media trial. Film crews were set up across the front steps of the courthouse, aiming their cameras towards the road in anticipation of the defense team's arrival. Up on the eighth floor, a hectic scene played out, where reporters from the multitude of news conglomerates who did not have reserved seats lined up for over an hour, waiting to hear their raffle numbers called. The jurors and their alternates were both present as well most dressed much nicer than they had been during jury selection, women wearing high heels and at least one man wearing a blazer and dress pants. Judge Mark E. Wyndham set the tone for the significance of their work by telling these jurors that they may write a book about their experiences after the trial, thereby suggesting that their lives would be dramatically changed by their selection. 
Inside the courtroom, Judge Wyndham disarmed the grizzled journalists in the gallery who were new to this trial by responding with a joke to a question from Prosecutor John Lewin about the possibility of dimming the lights. In Department 81, Wyndham deadpanned, we have every modern technology but dimmers. Chesnoff and Daguerrein seemed to seek out opportunities to make digs at the length and elaborateness of Lewin's presentation, occasionally provoking laughs from the gallery and the jury. As for Durst, the 76-year-old alleged killer made quite a dramatic entry to the courtroom, standing still and surveying the sea of reporters with wide eyes, almost basking in the moment. He then turned and fist-bumped Daguerrein, sending a message to the room. Game on. Carrie Antholis. I am out by the media trucks for the opening statement. Every hour or so, a runner brings down video cards from the courtroom camera. A technician plays the video and audio of that card, and each of the media organizations either records that feed or relays it electronically back to their respective studios. I record for Crime Story to be used in upcoming podcasts, and I watch and listen as the video plays. As I handle those responsibilities, I hear chatter among reporters who have come out of the courtroom, and I follow the commentary on Twitter. Initially, particularly during day one of Lewin's opening statement, the commentary seems to run somewhere between critical of and bewildered by the prosecutor's strategy. Kathy Rusan of Law and Crime tweets, Attorneys going at it again. DeGarren objects to Lewin saying Morris Black was murdered. Quote, the jury found him innocent, unquote. Lewin shouts back, quote, no, they found him not guilty, unquote. Then more bickering, judge tells them to stop it. Philip Holloway, a lawyer, says, Dick DeGarren is one of the all-time greatest criminal lawyers, hands down. My money is on the Robert Durst defense, and by the way, he is right to object to this. It's dangerous for the prosecutor to inject possible grounds for a mistrial into the case. Drew Morehouse tweets, Just spitballing here, but we're seeing so many clips from the jinx that Lewin's opening statement might be shorter if he just played the whole show in its entirety for the jury. It's less than six hours. Chris Sancarlo of KFI AM in Los Angeles tweets, There was a general feeling that prosecutors would relitigate the killings of Kathy and Morris Black as part of this trial, which is only about Susan Berman. It's remarkable how far from Berman's killing this opening statement has wandered. Sean Smith. Crime stories examine the media-conscious aspects of the Durst proceedings for almost a year now. That media sense is baked into the prosecution's working theory of the case. The physical evidence linking Durst to Susan Berman's murder is sparse. By and large, the evidence, phone and travel records, etc., is circumstantial. What Lewin does have at his disposal, however, is a seemingly inexhaustible tranche of self-incriminating statements made by Durst while cameras or tape recorders were rolling. The backbone of the people's case against Durst is his string of taped confessions, his DVD commentary for the feature film All Good Things, his December 11, 12, and 13, 2010 interviews with Andrew Jarecki for The Jinx, including the Hot Mike segment and his jailhouse interview with Lewin in New Orleans in March 2015. As Lewin observed on day one of his opening, one of the things that is going to become very clear in this case, what the evidence is going to show, is that much of the most damaging evidence is going to come directly from Mr. Durst himself, out of his own mouth. What the evidence is going to show is that in many ways, Mr. Durst will admit to things that most people would never admit to. Karen Ann Coburn. Did someone use the word circumstantial? 
Throughout Vardir, the past two weeks, Judge Wyndham, John Lewin, and even the defense focused quite a bit of time redefining the term circumstantial evidence for the jury. In the absence of physical evidence, it is clearly a large part of the prosecution's case. What they made clear, and I am sure the jury now understands, is that circumstantial evidence is really indirect evidence and is no more or less credible than other types of evidence. Take the example of a fingerprint found on a piece of paper. Even if you did not see a person handle the paper, learning that they had left a fingerprint on the paper strongly suggests that they have touched the paper. That is circumstantial. The lawyers joked that Perry Mason gave circumstantial evidence a bad name. So yes, there is a lot of indirect evidence in this case. The judge will instruct the jury as to what rules need to be followed when considering it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Sean Smith. The people in John Lewin have clearly concluded that the most compelling use of their media-heavy body of evidence is to lean into it. Durst's inculpatory statements form the bulk of the people's slideshow. Two monitors, positioned at right angles to the jury box, displayed Durst in what sculptors might call heroic scale, dwarfing the frail 76-year-old with hearing aids huddled with his defense team. This contrast could cause jurors to feel sympathy for the aged defendant. On the other hand, it might instead elicit the sort of disdain one feels when encountering a celebrity as they go about their daily business. Why do they always seem shorter and more ill-dressed and tired-looking than we imagine? The eerie timelessness of our media-captured selves versus our sagging physical reality. Durst's outspokenness, his desire to be captured on camera over the years, has damned him again. Karen Ann Coburn. Sean brings up a very interesting point, which struck me as I was watching Lewin's opening statements on Law and Crime's YouTube channel. The video and still photographs of a young Durst are a very powerful tool that might not have been available in the past or even in the average trial today. Going in, it seemed that Durst's frailty would be one of the defense's biggest assets. That's stripped away when the jury sees him, young and vigorous, on a big screen. The one shot of his and Kathy's wedding day seemed to be up quite a bit on day two. I would love to know if anyone in the room had a read on how the jury responded, where their focus landed, on the screen or on the defendant. Chris Terracone. On both of the first two days, I had a good view of the jury. The jurors paid attention to the proceeding, whether it was Lewin speaking or his audiovisual presentation. Their gazes rarely strayed over to the defense table. By this time, they had all spent a few days in court with Robert Durst and had become accustomed to his unresponsive, almost withdrawn demeanor. Their attention would, however, be drawn towards the defense table when Daguerrean objected and initiated a shouting match with the prosecution. But rarely did any of the jurors or alternates pay much attention to the defendant. Molly Miller. Karen and Chris, you're putting your finger on something I was thinking about as I watched from my living room slash research cave. Um, 
Durst as a physical presence. He's a man with whom it's nearly impossible to empathize. The former heir to the Durst Corporation has been shrouded in wealth his entire life and has rubbed elbows with the most powerful business titans of New York City. If his lifestyle is inaccessible, then his actions are even more unsettling. Durst has openly spoken about hitting his late wife, Kathy, and pulling her hair during a Christmas party. And Durst has admitted to, at the very least, dismembering the body of his Galveston neighbor and throwing the garbage-bagged human remains into the ocean. So to put the jury in Durst's shoes may be an impossible task for the defense, but if his team cannot arouse empathy, they can provoke a different emotion entirely, and that is pity. Durst is a shriveled man sitting at the council's table with a hearing aid and a bulge on his skull where doctors inserted a shunt to drain fluid from his brain. He has difficulty moving without an aid, and when he does, his steps are uncertain, his limbs turn gelatinous. So one can imagine the jury wondering, is this feeble man capable of murder? Chris Terracone. One of the things Lewin made sure to do extensively during jury selection was to explore whether the prospective jurors would tolerate his aggressive style or sympathize with the defense or with a hostile witness because they felt he was being rude. During Lewin's opening, none of the jurors or alternates seemed bothered by this sort of tactic. And, in fact, because Lewin did his due diligence, there were moments when some of the jurors seemed taken aback by evidence presented, including the Sarah letter and hot mic bathroom moment. It is not at all clear what the defense's strategy will be, beyond objecting copiously so as to lay the groundwork for an appeal if necessary. But during the jury selection, they did seem to lay some groundwork for a pity narrative. DeGuerin referred to this strategy as, quote, poor little rich boy. In the jinx. And among the jurors that they accepted, juror number nine said she found Durst charming in the jinx, though that was in the context of calling him a charming psychopath, of course. Sean Smith. The People's Slideshow also incorporated video and audio taped testimony of various witnesses and potential witnesses, many questioned under oath by Lewin and company. These witnesses represent a curious slice of baby boomer culturati. Film and music producers, musicians and actors and writers, all of whom hit their stride in the last quarter of the 20th century. It's arresting to see how time treats even the most beautiful of us. The men are balding and bifocaled, the women smaller and less flamboyant than their youthful selves. Together with Durst's summer of love rebelliousness, the picture that emerges is of a generation past its prime, saddled with the weight of its self-indulgences. Molly Miller. Unsurprisingly, Nick Chavin was featured prominently in the presentation. He's a man who Lewin underscored as a very important witness in this case. In video of prior testimony, Chavin appeared hunched and monotone. His frame was swallowed by this boxy suit. So Chavin is unique in the parade of expected witnesses because he was a close friend to both Robert Durst and Susan Berman. In the late 70s, Chavin was this emerging musician with hopes of being a rock star, and he developed a close bond with Berman, who was working as a music reviewer at the time. And when Chavin and Berman moved to New York, Berman introduced Chavin to Durst. The young men hit it off, partying and playing the field, despite the fact that Durst was married to Kathy at the time. 
So uh, Chavin is the hinge between the two parties. He's the one individual with intimate access to the victim and the accused. In the past, he testified, quote, Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said he told me, end quote. In addition, Chavin had this eerie dinner with Durst after Susan's death, which ended with Robert telling Chavin, quote, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice, end quote. So I look forward to seeing more of him in the coming weeks. Sean Smith. While always grounded in the presentation of admitted evidence, much of which was litigated over three years of pretrial motions, the people use the technology at their disposal to maximum effect. There are split screens, overlapping images, and animated text. Lumen and company also use suggestive captions. Images of the Berman crime scene, for example, were followed by a slide with the simple caption, quote, the motive was not robbery or burglary. Defense attorney Dick DeGaron sprang to his feet to object. DeGaron, uh, excuse me, Your Honor, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I believe that what's on the screen now, the motive for the murder was not robbery or burglary, is argument. That's not a statement of fact. Wyndham, ladies and gentlemen, the opening statement is not meant to be taken as an argument. This is a description by the lawyers from each side during their opening statement of what they expect that evidence will show. You may continue. Again and again, Lewin seems to ride the line between presenting evidence and making an argument. There is objection after objection from the defense. And, time after time, much as he did in the pretrial hearings, Judge Wyndham admonishes Lewin on his style, but overrules the objection and allows the evidence to be presented. Lewin and company have composed their own documentary about Robert Durst, one that connects past and present in a cohesive, character-driven narrative. It's a Greek tragedy where the original crime begets a series of subsequent misdeeds where blood follows blood. By the end of the first day, the defense attorneys have a deer-in-headlights look to them. According to the Los Angeles Times, quote, the stream of video clips prompted lead defense attorney Dick DeGaron to remark derisively outside of court, I thought I was in a movie theater, end quote. In my opinion, this is Lewin's greatest coup. Using the dominant language of not only Los Angeles, but our media-saturated culture, he presents a narrative that is visual, emotional, familiar, and damning. It remains to be seen whether the defense will argue using more traditional forensic methods, or if they too can infuse their response with 21st century media savvy. Welcome to L.A. indeed. Carrie Antholis. To Sean's point, Lewin seems to have crafted his opening statement in the idiom of an episodic television miniseries. It begins with a teaser of Susan Berman's murder, flashes back to the events surrounding his wife Kathy Durst's disappearance, comes back around to Berman's death, continues through the killing and dismemberment of Morris Black, and culminates with Durst's incriminating interactions with the filmmakers of the Jinx and with Lewin himself. The storytelling is measured. While the presentation may be tedious for those who know the story from the jinx, Lewin's intended audience is a panel of 12 jurors and 11 alternates to whom he is offering a roadmap for their upcoming five-month journey. By the time he gets to two climactic moments in his narrative, we can get a sense from one initially impatient observer of those jurors just how Lewin is doing. Chris Ancarlo of KFI-FM Los Angeles tweets, Lewin goes on to explain the murder of Black, which leads to another shouting match. DeGaron objected to the word murder, 
saying he was found innocent. Lewin says Durst was acquitted. DeGaron says there's no difference. Lewin turns and shouts, Oh, it's different, Dick. The theatrics are remarkable, but perhaps also a bit of strategy. It seems that Lewin knows he's pushing the limits to prompt an objection, which gives him a chance for a quick outburst in response. And that provides a jolt of energy to grab full attention back from the jury. And Carlos' tweets continue. By the way, as video plays of Durst explaining how he cut apart and disposed of Black's body, there was a visible response from several jurors. A look of disgust and incredulity at the descriptions was frozen on at least five faces. And in journalist Ancarlo's final tweets, he seems to have come around completely to the stagecraft of Deputy District Attorney John Lewin. Jarecki ambushed Durst with the Sarab letter, and Lewin plays the unedited portion of the interview showing the moment that Jarecki bursts out the letter. And then to the bathroom audio where Durst says, There it is. You're caught killed them all, of course. Jurors were leaning in for this portion of the video slash audio. More than a few raised eyebrows, but more importantly, Lewin had the full attention of every single juror at the most critical moment of the past 48 hours. Crime Story reporter Chris Terracone. Another aspect of Lewin's cinematic storytelling style is his habit of intercutting his narrative between what was going on in the lives of Durst, his friend Susan, his wife Kathy, and various side characters and friends in each of their stories. I could almost imagine the slug lines of a screenplay popping up as Lewin says, Meanwhile, in New York, Kathy starts medical school. Interior, medical school, day. Or, now, who is Susan Berman? Subtitle, Susan Berman, the daughter of Murder Incorporated's David Berman. Or, Sunday, January 31st, 1982, in South Salem. Exterior, cottage, night. Subtitle, Sunday, January 31st, 1982, South Salem, New York. This would be the last day of Kathy's life. In presenting evidence this way, he isn't just offering a narrative roadmap to the jurors, but stimulating their memories through a visual and, in many ways, a cinematic story. As Sean says, I'm also intrigued to see if Durst's defense can find a way to respond. They may be one of the best and most experienced legal teams money can buy, but do they have any facts or alternative narratives at their disposal to counter this sort of storytelling? Karen Ann Coburn. I came into this trial with a fair amount of knowledge, having been in the courtroom for motions over the past year, having seen the jinx and all good things. We have also had access to some evidence to be presented in the trial. Throughout, I've made an effort to see things from the defense's perspective and imagine scenarios in which Durst was innocent. I looked for ways to explain his behavior and statements, if you will. For instance, what could be explained by Asperger's syndrome, which we expect the defense team to present, or drug use, or the psychological impact of his mother's traumatic death? I'm very sensitive to society's eagerness to ostracize and even demonize those who are different. But John Lewin painted such a comprehensive and seemingly truthful picture of Durst this week that even I think the defense has a very tough road ahead. Molly Miller. It will be a tough road ahead indeed. Lewin has laid a firm foundation for what will undoubtedly be a meticulously constructed narrative of evidence, but whenever I think the odds against the defense are insurmountable, I am reminded that Durst was acquitted of murder in Galveston, Texas. 
There, Dick DeGaron managed to persuade a jury that Durst shot Morris Black in self-defense and then panicked and dismembered his body. So I'm certain that in this case, DeGaron will present an alternate interpretation of events and evidence that will sow doubt in the jurors' minds. The question is whether that doubt will ultimately seem reasonable. Chris Terracone. I talked to a few reporters outside the courtroom who referenced the trial in Galveston in discussing the difficult task ahead for the defense. Some of these reporters referred to DeGaron as a legal legend and murmured, well, if he got him, Durst, out of that mess, you never know. That said, the key difference between the two trials is the amount of evidence Robert Durst has created against himself over the past 18 years, including his Jinx interviews, his All Good Things interview, the bathroom audio, and his arrest interview with Lewin. Lewin has leaned on this new evidence heavily in his opening, underscoring a fact that was missing in Galveston. Durst lies. A lot. And he does so intentionally. And finally, yours truly, Carrie Antholis. So, with Deputy District Attorney John Lewin scheduled to sum up his opening statement on Monday, it will be the defense team's turn to present their alternative narrative of the available evidence. In their opening statement, we will begin to see the defense's strategy for sowing reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors, and perhaps we may glean the answer to one of the great mysteries of the People versus Robert Durst. Will Robert Durst take the stand on his own behalf. We did, in fact, glean the answer to that mystery in the defense's opening statement. Robert Durst will, in fact, take the stand. And so the mystery becomes, what will Robert Durst say? That was the prosecutor's cinematic opening in The People vs. Robert Durst, by a team of Crime Story contributors. For more crime and justice storytelling news and narrative analysis, head over to crimestory.com. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next Crime Story podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.